As it turns out, survival of the fittest applies as much to algorithms as it does to amoebas, at least when you are taking the approach of genetic algorithms. This week's episode on the podcast, we interview Dr. Jay Parrott, who's a PhD in astrophysics from the UK and also co-founder and CTO of Aria Networks, which is a company that helps route traffic for telecommunications companies and other companies that have to deal with large volumes of data. Jay's been working for many, many years in the domain of genetic algorithms. That is to say, algorithms that are tested with a whole bunch of variations and varieties in order to coax out a best result when there is no simple way to immediately program that off the bat. Jay goes into how genetic algorithms work and how they're tested and applied to a business context. He uses two very useful examples and simple sort of case studies, if you will, of where genetic algorithms have been applied. One of them actually with Facebook and some work that Aria Networks did with Facebook, which I think sort of aptly ties together the notions of genetic algorithms and sort of shows their potential applications in the real world. So without further ado, I hope you'll enjoy this episode. This is Jay with Aria Networks. So, Jay, first and foremost, I want to talk to you about this approach of genetic algorithms. I think a lot of folks who are tuned into the podcast have probably heard the term, probably have not utilized the approach themselves. I know that you've had to apply that same sort of approach to all kinds of different business problems. Give us an overview of what is a genetic algorithm in, in simple terms, how do you explain it to laypersons, and where do they need to be used? Okay, so genetic algorithms are... Well, they come about from trying to replicate what actually happens in nature. So evolution takes things that are happening in an environment and tries to optimize them so the, the uh, organism that is in that environment behaves as optimally as possible in that environment. By optimal, I mean it can find the right things to, to mate with, it can, it can eat, it can survive, it can pass on its genes. Yep. We do exactly the same thing with genetic algorithms. So a genetic algorithm is essentially a parameter tweaker. Any parameters or any controls that can be used to tweak a process, a GA essentially keeps trying lots of different versions or different combinations of these parameters uh, to get a, a good answer. As, an, as a simple example, a straight line fit, Y equals MX plus C. There's just two variables, the gradient and where it hits the X-axis. Yep. There's just two variables there. You could try every set of data, you could try to see every single variable combination and then say, pick the one that, that works best for you. But there's a lot of things to, to test there. But for a straight line, that might not be too bad. Now imagine you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of variables or hundreds of variables. How do you combine those together? You can't just do this randomly. You can't try every combination. So you have to have an intelligent way of selecting the right set of parameters or values to actually solve a problem. And that's where GAs are very, very good at. They're good at trying to come up with the right combination of parameters to solve a particular problem and they don't do it randomly it's called like a an intelligent random search so where you would apply a ga is where there is a lot of complexity in the problem it can't be solved deterministically it's not like a nice formula you could work out to work out what the answer is it's not precise and in fact it's quite a problem some people have with genetic algorithms is you don't really know when you've got the optimal answer you just know when you've got an answer that's good enough yeah so if you meet yeah. those conditions, you want you accept an answer that's good enough, and you've got lots of parameters to to tweak to solve a problem, then that's a good place to reduce GAs. Got it. Okay, and I'm just going to clarify the terms here, Jay. I appreciate the sort of synopsis. It sounds like to me a lot of the world cannot be boiled down to 
a thumbs up or a thumbs down. A lot of the world is gray. And I guess what you're saying is we're talking about domains, Jay, where we don't really know what perfect is, but we certainly know what functional is. And we have to get to functional, even though it's very hard, given all the factors at play. Maybe an example of something that would be too simple for genetic algorithms, where perfect does exist. What are examples of places where perfect does exist and maybe where it doesn't? I know we're going to get into some case studies in a quick second, yeah. um, but just to kind of paint the picture for people, what is kind of a closed system where we can really optimize and what's one that's just too darn open to ever get a perfect answer? So games are a great place to look for inspiration examples here. So we have a game, you know, we call it uh, Nuts and Crosses here in the UK. In, in the US, you probably call it Tic-Tac-Toe. It's a very simple game. You can actually sit down and write all the combinations from every single start point to guarantee where you're going to start a problem. Where you, you start a game, given a particular move, what's the next move, and are you likely to win or lose? You can actually work out every single combination of, of moves, and so you don't need the GA or you don't need artificial intelligence problem to solve that particular problem yep. and now think of chess yep. right chess there are still a finite number the finite number is absolutely massive oh yeah and you couldn't oh, yeah. look at every single possibility in your lifetime but it's quite well formed so you can use a ga to help search that huge space so a simple problem you know at Norton crosses where do you put a naught given a cross and how do you keep progressing the game that's a simple closed problem but you know chess is a lot bigger but even that was solved by Deep Blue every week. He knows about. Yep. But then the next problem was Go, because it's meant to be even more complex, a lot more. There's patterns to recognize, etc. So that took a little bit more effort. And that's where AI really came into its own by showing that where the problem is just too big to be solved in one go, then you know, attacking it in a in a different way by learning from experience, which is what GAs do, just like it happens in nature, you know, nature learns yep. from experience. Yep. You can you can provide a improved example. Ah, okay, okay. And nature certainly does learn from experience. You know, the, the folks tuned in are, are certainly aware of mating and the, the scrambling of genes. And, and essentially, scrambling of genes is, you know, you had put it very well, it's a parameter tweaker. So genetic algorithms are parameter tweakers. The scrambling of genes are parameter tweakers. You know, if the claws are a little bit sharper, if the backbone is a little bit stronger, if the fur is like this instead of like this, you know, how much more or less likely is this creature going to succeed in this environment? So now this is how you get to use GA. So you've now hit the nail on the head here. In nature, the things we're tweaking are the genes. In genetic algorithms, you're still tweaking genes. But now what are your genes? What are the things that describe the problem you're working on. For a human, it's everything from the proteins to eye color to hair color to size, etc. With your problem, you, know, you want to apply a GA2, it might be the location of routers in a network or whether you smoke or how much alcohol you drink a, a day. Or you know, These are the things that you can play with. Uh, it could even be you know, the, the values on dials on a piece of physical equipment. Those are things that can be changed to affect a different result. You make those genes, and then the GA just it works on those genes without knowing anything about the problem. You just have to wait a way to say, given this particular version of these complete parameters, this is how fit my solution is. Got it. So you have to and have, that last bit, have a way to measure it. Is, yeah. is important. And it, would that be sort of your cost function, Jay, to use some machine learning terminology here? Yes, exactly right. Okay, got it. So yeah, that would be a, how, how far yeah. Got it. So how far away are you from a kind of a presumed ideal 
Again, sometimes that's easier to manage than other times, but at least you'll have a proxy for whether or not you have something that's good enough to really serve a functional purpose, in your case, in a different, in a certain business context. Just to see if I'm on the right page again, Jay, let's say we're trying mm -hmm. to, and we're going to talk about some of your examples in networking and elsewhere. Let's say I'm trying to predict the prices of coastal homes in Europe. So like continental Europe, you know, France, Spain, Portugal, et cetera, coastal homes, whether they're big or small, let's say that that's what I'm trying to predict. Maybe I'd look at, you know, square footage, I'd look at, you know, country and proximity to major cities and all, all these various parameters. I could come up with a hundred of them easily. It seems as though, you know, again, like you said, if you just have an X-intercept or a Y-intercept and a slope, coming up with all the varieties is still functionally infinite. But I mean, you know, a human might be able to come up with the reasonable ones and boil it down. If you have hundreds, right. you really can't. It would seem as though what you would do if you were a person by themselves trying to figure this out is, is you would start with likely scramblings that you think might lead to success. But I suppose that's what you, Jay, would count on a genetic algorithm to do, to come up with enough of those initial parameter starters to be better than 100 human guesses. We're counting on a genetic algorithm to do better than just get somebody on a whiteboard to write some reasonable permutations and just start with those, right? You're counting on a machine to do that job better than a person coming up with their idea of the right starting parameters and weights here. How does that work? How is a genetic algorithm doing a better job of those initial scrambling of where we can start on this problem for parameter-wise in order to predict housing prices mm -hmm. than a human ever could? So it's really down to speed and the way that you learn from experience. So when a person does this, like take a, a salesman, say a salesman who's selling these properties in these coastal towns, a person who just starts the industry won't know what the relevance is of square footage, the location of the of the building, things like that. Yep. But an experienced sales guy would, because over the years he has learned what things are good and what things are bad. Yep. Right? You see, he's he's learned from experience. But that may have taken him twenty years to do. We can do the same thing with a GA in seconds. Right? That's mm. the difference. We can explore a much bigger problem in seconds. And if I could just use, you know, we've got to talk about GAs here, and GAs can solve problems by themselves, just like, you know, what we talk about, because what combination of parameters work together. Yep. But now imagine you have something that's very flexible, a computer that's very flexible, that can solve almost any problem, but what you don't know is how to tweak the way that computer works, Yeah. right? Now use a GA to tweak the way the computer works, and you've got something amazingly powerful, right? And that in the case, this case here, the, the computer I'm talking about is what's called a neural network. That's a very, very powerful tool to solve problems, but it's exceptionally hard to set up because there are so many different ways of doing it. Yep. Now allow a GA to play around with its design, and bang, you've got something that's, that's damn powerful. Got it. Okay, okay. So now I'm going to try to put this in a nutshell for the audience, and we're going to move on to some of your case studies at, at ARIA Networks. Sure. The a neural network, I mean, for some of the audience is going to be more familiar than others. If you're constructing a neural network, you're determining how many layers are going to be in this neural network, what your initial inputs are to the neural network, what the weights are between all those various inputs and all the interim layers to sort of shake yeah. out the result that you want on the other end in a way that's going to be predictive. This is something that's Googleable. It's something we've certainly covered in other interviews for people tuned in, but just to kind of sure. put some context on what Jay is, is talking about, neural networks, lots of parameters and hyperparameters to tweak and to adjust 
in order to shake out that best result. So we're talking about running through an infinitely larger number of those initially than a human ever could to find where the best likely combination is going to be for our predictive aim. I know you recently published a paper not that long ago with Facebook, and I take it that that might be a useful example for the audience to understand in terms of how you're using this stuff in a real-world kind of business context. Yes. Well, we've, we've written the paper for publication. It's been selected publication, but oh, it's it. yep. in public domain, so it's, it's okay to talk about. Cool. Yeah, but so the problem was it fits this category, you know, the category is kind of describing very nicely. It's a very complex problem. You've got large data centers all around the U.S. which are transferring or that need to transfer lots of data in different sizes at different times of the day across a network. There are two layers in the network. There's an optical layer and there's an IP layer. So we've got two, a transport layer and a service layer. How do you design and build that network? Where do you put the transport nodes? Where do you put the IP nodes? Where should you protect data? Where should you let data go unprotected? There's lots and lots of parameters, even down to which equipment should we use, right? Mm. So in this instance, we made genes of a lot of those different properties, like what routers should we use? How should they be connected up? What's the cost for the different types of ports? All that, those were genes in our solution. And we then provide that to our learning engine. And over a period of seconds to minutes, it came up with a network design that wasn't just good for the data today. It also worked out if a network was to fail, how could we, where would traffic get rooted? Would we get hotspots? So let's redesign a network to make those hotspots as low as possible. The great thing was that when a human did that optimization, we got a certain value. When the AI system did its optimization using the GAs, we got 25% less cost in the IP ports of that network. That's a, that's a reduction of you know, a quarter of the cost, which when you're a network operator as big as you know, Facebook, Facebook is a phenomenal <laughs> amount. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. Gargantuan. Right? And that's, that's the kind of things you can affect. That's a, a very strategic problem because you, know, you don't build networks every day. But the thing is, you can now build your optimal network. But then every so often, as every month or every week, you can re-optimize where services are, are rooted. And we actually took that into consideration when we were doing the analysis as well. So that's a very practical example. But the objective, and I said about objectives, the objective there was keeping the cost of the equipment low, making sure that services had high availability, making sure the latency for latency-intensive services was low. Those were all packaged together into describing our objective function, and we let the GA go away, come up with a design. That would normally be done by a person, take a long time to do, and you couldn't guarantee doing a good job of it. But at least we know with the AI system, you could run several of these in parallel you know, yeah. and come up with a, an example because it's just, you know, you need another smart person, you turn on the computer. It's, just, it's the same thing. Huh. Okay, L let me see if I can paint this as a mental picture for the audience. Jane, you can tell me if I'm on the right page. We're looking at, for our particular business audience, is probably well aware that satellites aren't magic and Wires that run through the ground aren't magic, and you can really only carry so much volume of, of certain things, and there's only so much security through certain channels, and there's only so much streaming video you can pump through a given wire to how many people at what kind of time Facebook is working on mobile and desktop, and et cetera, et cetera. So very complicated. We're getting a lot of stuff into a lot of people's hands, you know, videos, photos, and this, this app in general. All the ways that we could structure our routers, all the ways that we could route the traffic all the ways that we could reroute things under certain kind of emergency type situations, certain kind of high volume type situations. You could brainstorm hypothetically as a person 
look at your network of national sort of data centers, look at the current way that those are being routed, the hardware that's being used, the kinds of emergency events you need to be prepared for, and calculate and calibrate something better than what you have now. But I guess what you're getting at is that if you can simulate the kinds of variance that has happened in the past and the kind of variance that might happen in the future, and you can simultaneously simulate thousands of ways that that traffic could be routed, thousands of ways that those data centers could be balanced in their capacities, hundreds of different variants of the kinds of hardware we're using at what data centers and what junctions, you can probably shake out a way to optimize that traffic and the cost and expense of routing those gajillions of bits and bytes better than a human at a whiteboard taking their best crack at it. I think this is the synopsis. Let me know if I'm on the right page. You're on the right page. That's a synopsis. There's probably just one thing that I would add. It's not that we can produce you know, trillions of different examples faster than the person does. Each time we create one more example, we learn a little bit about what made this example better or worse than the previous one. And over those, every time we create you know, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands, we're learning each time for the particular problem we're working on. So it's not just creating lots of examples in one go and looking at them all it's each time we create another example we learn a little bit about what's important and we use that to steer our ga in the right general direction and eventually it hones in on on what is the best example or sorry the best set of conditions so you're absolutely right in what you say except there's a there's a little extra step in that is we learn every time yep. we make a change as as evolution which, does. which a person does yeah. as well right yep yeah no person yeah, and does. Exactly. evolution does <laughs> exactly yep through the unfortunate process of the birth and death of millions of its full natural children there but yeah in this case obviously we're able to iterate much more quickly mm-hmm. than nature itself can i mean of course again as you said learning along the way. I presume some people tuned in are familiar with the notion of reinforcement learning. We have some kind of definition of success that this genetic algorithm is striving for. And I take it that, you know, the the algorithm can detect itself as it's working. Nobody has to flag it that, hey, this kind of hardware for these kind of data centers works great under these kind of circumstances. But as it turns out, it fails pretty significantly under circumstance X and Y and Z. And that's giving us a much lower aggregate delivery of kind of routing our traffic in our network sort of across the board across an entire year than it would be if we use this other hardware. So the success metrics, I imagine, are already in there for the algorithm to sort of bounce itself off of. Is the term reinforcement learning proper here or no, Jay? You're right. Someone who knows a little bit about AI, they probably come up with supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. And supervised learning, you've got examples of what you're trying to do. So... You know, we, we have another example we did with, with a, a company that we're looking at genes that affect somebody's propensity to get a disease. So we had examples of people who had the disease, people who didn't have the disease, and we tried to figure out what the relationship was between one and the other. That's supervised learning because you've got examples. Yep. Unsupervised learning is usually categorizing stuff. I've got a whole lot of data. We let the system organize itself and come up with categories. But reinforcement learning is, and that's what we did with Facebook, we can do all different types, but... The reinforcement learning is really sort of having penalties and rewards for getting closer or farther away from the solution. So that's exactly the right terminology there. Got it. Okay. I did want to make sure I was on the right page. I know we're coming up on time, Jay, but I didn't want to miss out on the last case study that we talked about off microphone here, where you had talked about an example using the same technology that you leverage at ARIA in another domain, but still being able to yield some exciting and beneficial results. Talk about that diagnostic example for the folks tuned in. Okay. So there was a company called Solera Diagnostics who 
were responsible. They were the commercial company that, that mapped the human genome. So they got a lot of experience in working out people's DNA, you know, mapping that DNA profile. And what we did with them was they gave us people's whole DNA. We had a number of customers, about 200 customers, patients, about 250 patients. Yeah. Uh, and we had a large number of genes for each of those pair patients, but also things like how much they drank, whether they were male or female, what they took for contraception and things like that. And, and it's, there's a reason for, for doing this. The disease was a disease called deep vein thrombosis, which I'm sure people have heard of, DVT. It's what people can get for taking very long air flights. You get clots in the leg and it can, it can cause heart attacks. So yep. believe it or not, there's actually a genetic reason for getting that. But also your lifestyle can, can make you more or less susceptible to getting that. So in a blind test, Solera gave us 30,000 genes per patient and a whole lot of what's called phenotype information, so lifestyle information. And we blindly dis- used our system to discover what was crucial in whether someone got or didn't get deep brain thrombosis. And we published a paper with them on it. And what was interesting was we identified the ones that were known, there's two proteins that are, or two genes rather, that are, that are very well known and you can be tested for these. And we found those straight away. They were like lighthouses in our data. But then there were lots of other interesting things like the time which a, a woman started having periods as a, as a young girl actually mm. is a contributing factor. Wow. When we identified all these different components without knowing what they were, it turned out we have actually worked out what was the known cycle in the body uh, called the estrogen cycle. So whether, you know, you could be highly at risk if you were one of these ladies who started young, if you took a contraceptive pill for contraception, things like that would make you more susceptible. So we found these things out, but without knowing what the data was, the system had just worked out the mapping itself. So they would go and identify another set of genes that they could use as a clinical test. So they could do a clinical test, but also you could make lifestyle choices if necessary to reduce your propensity to get this type of disease. And there, the objective, this was a supervised learning example, where we were trying to map all these many thousands of parameters to a single parameter, which was, did you get the disease or not? Yes. And we could translate the probability. That was what was done in that particular example. But, you know, it's again, it's the AI doesn't know what it's working on. It's just tweaking its own parameters and trying to get a result that matches. And every time it tweaks something that improves it, remembers it, if it tweaks something that doesn't improve it, it remembers it and doesn't go that way again. For the folks who have to Google a couple terms like supervised learning, Jay gave us a good preliminary definition, but that I suppose is what's going on here. I mean, and I guess this is a lot of the promise of these technologies in, in medicine and elsewhere, but certain medicine, I think there's a lot of motivation because you know we have lives at stake. There are, like you yeah. said, some of those factors and parameters maybe people can't change, but still should be wary of. For example, in women, when did they start getting their period? Within a certain age range, that may warrant a different kind of a checkup for a different kind of a risk profile. Then there are other factors around things that they can actually do, whether that be you know consumption yes. of alcohol or whether that be the way that they and the kind of contraception that they use or what have you. There might be a, a you know myriad other in your thousands of parameters, myriad other parameters that really if you actually identified them, you could literally do something about them as a person. I think that as a promise is, is a big, big deal in the medical world yeah. and, I, and I hope we end up seeing more and more of that. So Jay, I'm glad that we got to get through some of the, the fundamentals on this and hear your explanation as a genetic algorithm. So the folks tuned in, um, I know we went into a little bit of overtime, but I really did want to get into Jay's second example. I hope this was informative for everybody tuned in. Jay, thanks so much for being able to join us today on the Tech Immersions Podcast. 
My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.